Moms fishing for husbands, but the girls are hunting for love. Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, here in a moment. Welcome back to Elevate Ordinary. I'm your host, John Mark Grodi. Oh, and I'm Teresa Grodi. Yeah, and we're back with another great conversation about the ordinary pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. And we're, and we're joined again by a good friend, uh, now good friend. Uh, we've been having a good conversation, Brittany Inzio. Uh, we talked last time about children's literature, and we're actually we're going to continue the conversation about literature. Uh, I was reading the spicy little teaser on the front of my copy of Pride and Prejudice, you can see here. And I, Nice 80s edition. I read the teaser like. for, for a purpose here because it's, it's so funny that uh, we want to talk right at the beginning about uh, maybe somebody disabuse uh, some people's notions that maybe Jane Austen is just kind of spicy romance novels. It's anything but. I mean, as, as you said last time, uh, she's really the mistress of writing about virtue and vice in this sophisticated way. We'll get to that before we do. Um, go to awakencatholic.org slash donate. Become part of the Awakened Nation. Support this mission of sharing truth through beautiful media. Uh, also, download the app at theawakenapp.io. We have a great community there. You interact with hosts and other members. Get special stuff if you're a supporter in the Awaken Nation. Also, download the Hallow app at hallow.app slash awaken. You can get a free 30-day trial subscription. It also supports the ministry. We appreciate that very, very much. So, Teresa, uh, reintroduce our special guest. Please. Yes, we are here today again with Brittany Inzio, um, who blogs at, oh, I have it on the other sheet. I want to get it right. Goodbooksforcatholickids.com. She has excellent, excellent, excellent book lists over there for an excellent taste. All excellent too. taste. Yes, we had an excellent, <laughs> sorry, we had extraordinary conversation with her last episode about children's books. So um, please check that out after you watch this. Um, Brittany, are you there? I'm here. Wonderful. Awesome. So um, our show Elevate Ordinary is about taking the ordinary things in life and recognizing the way that they are elevated as sacramentals and they lift our hearts to God. And I feel like Jane Austen is an excellent patroness Mm. for our podcast next to G.K. Chesterton, our patron, um, because she is just a mistress of taking ordinary lives and just playing out vice and virtue in hearts. Um, and as uh, Lizzie Bennett, as we get in today, one of the characters in Pride and Prejudice says uh, to her sister Jane, until I have your goodness, I cannot have your happiness. Hmm. And that is really, truly, that is really the essence of all of Jane Austen's books. Goodness equals happiness and vice the vice doesn't get married in the end. I tell you. <laughs> so or does, and it's they're miserable. You know. Yeah. So the reason why we're having this discussion with you is because I noticed that on your blog, Pride and Prejudice is one of your favorite, one of your favorite books, and so um, we're we're recording two episodes today so that we can talk about. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about Jane Austen from a Catholic point of view. But you, so your, I didn't realize that. So your favorite. So maybe you know, right off the bat, just a little bit. I mean, why is it your favorite? You know, it, well, one of my favorites. Teresa will tell you, I have sure. a list of favorites because picking one book as a favorite is too difficult totally. for me. But Pride and Prejudice is definitely up there. As Teresa said, Jane Austen is just the mistress of 
writing about the ordinary in an, in an extraordinary way. Mm-hmm. Now her comedies, because I think they're comedies, they're comedies yeah, yeah. of manners of everyday life. It's like a sitcom from 200 years ago. It's like the office. <laughs> <laughs> and yet at the same time, it's, it's, it's has such she has such deep insight into human nature and yeah. it's so satisfying because like a good fairy tale in the end the the good people end up together and the wicked people end up miserable and what's more satisfying <laughs> than that exactly <laughs> oh, i love it oh goodness so um so just a little context so jane austen lived a little before chesterton Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, she died in 1817 at the age of 41. So she was not very old and she was one of eight children. Her father was the rector of an Anglican parish. So he was a clergyman and I love her treatment of clergymen in her books. Um, she must have known some men very, you know, like very well to be able to give these these excellent portrayals of sometimes ridiculous clergymen. Um and her mother, uh, they had so they had eight children, and she was a hard worker. And all of the Austin children participated in the household, um, and they had big libraries. And um, uh, Jane produced many good books in the middle of a, a domestic church. Um, so, kind of like my hope for homeschooling children uh, in with great literature. So, Pride and Prejudice is a book about true happiness found through virtue. Um, would you read the back of your pride, your 1980s pride and prejudice romance novel there, please? So we can just get an idea of who the characters are and what the plot is. And there will be spoilers. I'm sorry. This is an excellent piece of literature. You will read it over and over again. So we are going to spoil away and you will not regret it. Okay. What's a girl to do? Scatterbrained social climbing. Mrs. Bennett makes one demand of her daughters. Mary, Mary, well, Mary rich. I can't dis. I can't abuse this. The back of this book is not. This is such an in. This is not. But it does give you the characters. Yeah. But sweet Jane is hopelessly in love with Mister Bingley, who doesn't seem to notice. Flighty Lydia wants a man, any man, preferably one in uniform. Kitty just wants to have fun. Shy Mary has her nose in a book, and Elizabeth, brilliant, stubborn, independent Lizzie, refuses the advances of the most marriageable man in town. Haughty, handsome, wealthy Mister Darcy. Mrs. Bennet's in hysterics. Mr. Bennett's in his study. Lydia's eloped with a soldier, and Jane's heart may well be broken. Will any of the Bennett girls find true love and fortune? <laughs> no, I wanted him to read that because that is exactly what I thought Jane Austen was. You know, because you watch the movies and the movies have to have a plot, right? You can't get all well, the things They have to have a spicy in, plot. They have to know? kind of spice them up a little bit. Um, so I always just kind of thought she was this romance. They were like, uh, what is it, Georgian? Is that the time period? Romance novels, you know, um, and it wasn't until I I read the book, one of the books for the first time that I realized that this is all vice and virtue, all vice and virtue. So, guys, I have some rapid fire Jane Austen questions to get us started for our icebreaker. Are you ready? OK. What is your favorite Jane Austen book? Brittany, you go first. Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, uh, let's see the Pride and Prejudice for Sense and Sensibility. Although, dang, I am, Emma's pretty darn good. Gosh. Yeah. Emma, That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, Emma's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what is your favorite Jane Austen adaption? Ooh. This is important. 
Oh, the, the BBC Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> the long Pride and Prejudice, yes. yes. Is that the one that we like? I, yeah. Oh, okay. I guess we have the same one. So we have the same adaption. <laughs> Followed great. closely by Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility. I really like that. I love that one. Yeah, she's very good. She did that adaption herself. Well, you know, it's, a, it's just a funny thing about this. So, again, my, my family is a literature family. But I don't think, I'm not sure if my dad or my mom had read much Jane Austen. But I grew up in a family of boys. And mom would watch the... Jane Austen movies, which I, you know, I don't, I mean, they, you could, they were decent, you know, but we would always sort of tease like, Oh yeah, she's watching her romance movies again. But then I, we'd always start watching them because even the movies, like they're just great stories. You know, they're not just uh, spicy, silly romances. Like they really are sophisticated stories, sophisticated characters. Again, all the vice and virtue played out. So, yeah. And like we've said in other episodes, I think that when you have a classic piece of literature, it is, it is worth hearing an adaption, either hearing an adaption or watching a performance to see people who are, because sometimes you get what's only in your own head, right? And to see people who know it deeply, to see um, a director or somebody who knows it deeply to then perform it. I mean, sometimes I, sometimes it can get really bad, <laughs> yeah. but then other times um, you, it can just elevate it to an entirely different plane and then you reread it again and it's phenomenal. The C.S. Lewis space trilogy, particularly Paralandra, um, is like that too. A lot of people can't get through Paralandra when they're reading it, but when you hear it, it's it's just a totally different world. Um, okay, which Jane Austen character do you most identify with, Brittany? Hmm. That's tricky. I mean, I love Elizabeth Bennet. I also feel like I. Identify with Mr. Bennett, though, strangely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so for, from any. Yeah. Any, from any, from yeah. any. You know, so. oh. um, I'd say growing up, I was a little bit of um, Eleanor in Sense and Sensibility. I'm an oldest kid. Mm -hmm. I just felt responsible. So. <laughs> Had to be like a sane one. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the 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 elder Mr. Bennett and Lizzie probably as well, you know, or maybe some Darcy too. Again, I, it's it's funny if you're thinking in terms of the the virtues of the vices. I definitely uh, have some of Mr. Bennett's and Mr. Darcy's vices. Whether or not I have their virtues is another question. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready for mine, mm -hmm. Mrs. Bennett? <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Bennett, Mrs. Jennings, and what's his name? Mrs. Jennings is. Son-in-law. Mm -hmm. I forgot his name. Oh. oh. It's not a lord. It's like, what's his name? Sir, Sir something. Sir, ah, Sir John? No. Is it? I don't know. But um, I definitely, like, I want to be Elizabeth Bennet. I thought for a long time I was Eleanor. I, th I was like, finally, I have a heroine. I have a heroine that I can identify with. But then I realized in this last reading of Sense and Sensibility that I really am Marianne. Um, like mm. I've actually had a Marianne instance in my life, but I never read it as mine. And so it's like this. We did an episode on The Office. Have you ever watched The Office? Actually, Michael Scott. That's okay. That's okay. I just need to know how much I need to explain. So this is another um, another show that we just watch and watch. And I mean, we I'm, we've watched it some obscene number of times this this series, and um, 
it's funny because when you start to watch it, you're like you identify with the sane characters, right? Like Pam and Jim, who are the the middle of the road, sane, kind of observing everyone else's craziness. Yeah. You know, similar with Jane Austen, like you you pick it up and you're the heroine, you know, and you're just observing everybody else's ridiculousness. And then the second or third time through, you start to get a little uncomfortable because you start to see yourself in the vices of the ridiculous people. And then several more times in, you're just like, you have so much pity for, you know, the person you hated at the beginning, you know, Mrs. Bennett or, you know, whoever, the annoying person, because you're like, that's me to everyone else and I'm sorry and if there's something that Jane Austen novels are full of it was the I was wrong moments you know and I think that that's like that's the office is full of that we did another podcast on the office but it's like these moments where you finally realize that you this this vice is in you yes yeah yeah, but wouldn't you say in Jane Austen that the big difference between the characters who like kind of have a redemptive ending versus not mm-hmm. is whether they're able to like have that moment? You know, because yes. someone like Mrs. Bennett never has that moment, right? right? You yeah. see, we see when, we should, when she should have had that moment after everything with Lydia, yeah. but yeah. she doesn't, you know? Yeah. yeah, that's what, when I told him I was Mrs. Bennett, he kind of calmed me down with that. And he's <laughs> like, well, but you have more self-awareness. I'm like, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe maybe that's a way in. Maybe would you talk for a moment, Brittany? Um, what so why is this book called Pride and Prejudice? What are some of the, the ways in which those two titular vices uh, are played out in this book uh, overall? Well, shall we just start by defining pride? Sure. Can I can I give can I give Mary Mary Bennett's the the middle. Uh, kind of book nerd, whatever that the back of that thing said that she yeah, was. Uh, um, yeah. Her definition of vanity and pride. Sure. To Please. get us started. Yeah. Okay. Vanity and pride are different things, though the words are often used synonymously. A person may be proud without being vain. Pride relates more to our opinion of ourselves and vanity to what we would have others think of us. I like the distinction. Yeah, they are often used interchangeably. How would you define pride, Brittany? Well, there's the Aristotle viewpoint and the Thomistic viewpoint. Which you, which you mentioned earlier, and thinking I would know what that distinction is. But again, I play a really great book nerd on TV, but I'm not actually as well read as I sometimes sound. So, what are what's the distinction there between those two? So Aristotle actually calls pride a virtue. Often, he even can call it the crown of virtues Darcy. because to him, someone who has pride is someone who not only has great ability but uses it. And I actually think that's how Darcy sees himself. Yes. Like, yeah. I have a high opinion of myself because yes. I have all this potential and I'm actualizing it. I'm awesome. You know, yeah, at the beginning of the he book. says it. Yeah, he yes. says something like that. Yeah. yeah, he says something like that. Now, and then uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and Asuma, on the other hand, you know, he, for him, he calls pride an extreme, you know, and it's opposed to the virtues of humility and magnanimity. Yeah. Is what he calls the, the mean, right? Yeah. So, you know, humility for St. Thomas Aquinas is having a true opinion, a true vision of your own worth. It's not being down on yourself or making yourself less than you are, but it's actually saying, okay, well, here's who I am. Here's my vices. Here's my virtues. This is who I am. You yeah. know, that's humility for yeah. St. Thomas. And pride, on the other hand, is having this overblown idea I'm better than I think I am. I mean, better, I think I'm better than I really am. Yeah. Right. I love well, one of the reasons I love that uh, distinction between pr- pride and vanity too is because 
while they're often, they're used synonymously sometimes, you know, that we think, oh, that person's prideful because they're vain, that we think of them the same thing. In some sense, pride uh, at its worst is almost the opposite of vanity, or it's very opposed to vanity, because there's a grain of hum- of humility in vanity in the sense of it, it needs other people. It, it, does, right. it, it does care about the rest of the universe, whereas at its worst, pride is sort of like, you know, um, especially saying to God, you know, with 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 Satan, this is Satan's great sin. There's there's no there's not enough room in this universe for the two of us. You know, I I it's my world, the way I see things, and I don't care what you think. Whereas vanity, no, it it, it perhaps uh, viciously in the sense of vice cares too much of what other people think, but it still cares about uh, them. It still includes them in the universe, and so uh, pride is a much more inward looking uh, vice. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, at the beginning of Pride and or the the first half of Pride and Prejudice, um, Lizzie and all of her family and all of her town accuse Mr. Darcy of being prideful, and he is, you know, um, he's not without merit, but he is prideful. But the the real I was wrong moment is realizing that while Darcy is proud and sees her group as something that is beneath him. She is proud and ignores the the silliness of her group and sees his group as beneath beneath them in like a moral sense, you know. But the reality is, is they both start to look at the other person's ridiculous relatives. They start to recognize in their own relatives, in their own circles, the ridiculousness. And then they both kind of like I, Lizzie has this line that like... um until then I did not know myself. She, she accepted her own crowd, her own family, her own friends as well. They're, they're somewhat ridiculous. You know, Mr. Bennett is a great, um, he's always looking for the ridiculous and always pointing out the ridiculous. And Lizzie is very much like that, you know, so she's fine with her own crowd. Yeah. They're a little ridiculous, but they're not that bad. And Darcy is the exact same way. Like, yes, but they're, they're of, of higher elevation, but you know, Mr. Hurst is just a, a, lazy slob who falls asleep and is just laying around drunk all the time. But he's a gentleman who has a lot of money. You know, Lady Catherine de Bourgh is no better than Mrs. Bennet, for heaven's sakes. (laughs) They're like two sides of the same coin, you know. And so, you know, it was finally that, not vanity, but really seeing how the other people, the other people saw their circle that kind of made them realize like their own pride. You know, yeah. Was that too much? No, it's good. I'm just pondering. <laughs> Sorry. Well, there's the pride, and then there's the prejudice, right? Okay. Pride and prejudice, mm-hmm. and obviously, a lot of their friction in the beginning was that, yeah, he was prejudiced against her because of the silly crowd, the silly the atmosphere. He just hated it all, mm-hmm. and she was prejudiced against him because his her first impression of him was unprepossessing. You know, mm-hmm. and of course. As contrasted with her first impressions of Wickham, who Mm -hmm. comes off as a charmer on his first impression. And so she's prejudiced favorably toward him. And, you know, that plays out for a while in the book, how she just believes everything that Wickham says and all things good Wickham just because of that initial prejudice toward him. And she just Mm -hmm. assumes the worst of Darcy. Oh, that is so timely. Truly, I want us all to kind of think about that because Jumrick's going to get here. G.K. Chesterton, oh, another one of our you know amazing patrons, has a reflection on Jane Austen's Wickham, 
Mr. Wickham, um, who is the villain, you know, of this of the story. But um, gosh, what did you just say there? Well, that because of the prejudice that she yeah. had towards Darcy, she accepted everything that Wickham said. That is timely. That is, I think, how how politics, it doesn't matter what, what side you're on. It's all a game. You know, we're all playing games to try to get people whatever. But perhaps setting up like, you know, working on prejudices to so that you believe what the other side has wholeheartedly because you hate you have this prejudice against the other person. Mm-hmm. Jane Austen's so good. Read it all. (laughs) Okay. What are. Well, I'm going to read that a little bit. You know, so yeah, Mr. Wickham. So who's uh, Mr. Wickham? Mr. Wickham is. Grew up as a boyhood friend of Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy is like one of the richest men in a particular area. He's very well landed. um, And. Wickham was the son of Mr. the elder Mr. Darcy's steward. So young Mr. Darcy um, and Wickham grew up together. And um, Elizabeth meets Wickham and or Elizabeth meets Mr. Darcy and has a like a very disagreeable first meeting with him and believes him to be very proud. So that when Mr. Wickham comes to town as an officer, um, and you know, the little girl, the the Bennett girls are all about officers, the younger Bennett girls. Um, and so she has frequent interactions with Wickham and Wickham begins to tell, this is how Darcy wronged me. Um, I should have had better and, but I'm okay. You know, it's, it's okay. You know, I'm fine, whatever. But he just, he wronged me very, very, very much. Um, and so this is, this is where we are. You know, I want to ask a question, Brittany, because <laughs> uh, this, this gets into a little bit of talking about Mr. Wickham. It's interesting. We were talking about earlier, uh, the difference between sort of the characters who are very self-aware, they're aware of their virtues and vices and those who really aren't. Um, I, I'm not sure what I think about that. Like, is that, is that a, is that a virtue? Where does that self-awareness come from? Because certainly with, again, Wickham, Lizzie, Darcy, maybe uh, Charlotte Lucas, uh, Mr. Bennett to some degree. Yeah. There's a, there's a real kind of awareness of, of how they're perceived and what their virtues and vices are. Whereas with other characters like Mrs. Bennett or Lady Catherine de Bourgh or um, uh, Lizzie's little sisters, they're, Whatever their virtues and vices are, they don't seem to have the same sort of self-recollection. What 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 do we make of that? I, I'm not sure what to make of that exactly. Well, I think it does tie into humility a little bit, like having the right estimation of yourself. Obviously, yeah. Mrs. Bennet, Lydia, Lady Catherine, the dis- Wickham, all the despicable characters yeah. are lacking in a certain uh, humility. They they see themselves as more important than they are, mm-hmm. more worth listening to than they are. They, but they also have a certain um, imp- imprudence about them, yeah. I would guess. Yeah. would be the other vice, or the, the vice, I would say. Yeah. They lack humility and they have a lot of imprudence. They don't stop and think before they act. They don't reflect yes. on their words before they say them. Mm-hmm. And Wickham's, Wickham's a little different because I think that he maybe has mm-hmm. thought about how he wants to represent himself. So maybe he, that's why he's the worst character because mm-hmm. he intentionally goes out to slander Darcy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other characters maybe just are rather more imprudent than anything. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the, the virtue that came to my, my mind as well in terms of, uh, again, I don't, I don't know if I have this exactly right, but when we think about uh, if there's any connection between virtue and vice explicitly and this ability to be self-aware, I do think prudence uh, is a big is a key here. Where you know, prudence, as we we talked a lot about before, is this habit of turning to reality, 
And so mm-hmm. I think some people are more temperamentally able to be self-aware, you know, kind mm-hmm. of see themselves, you know, uh, and humbly, you know, acknowledge who they are. But even if we're maybe temperamentally deficient in it, we can make a habit, more of a habit of of reflecting back, you know, asking what what happened today? What did I say? How did I act? What led up to that? Um, and the, the interesting thing about that, so I, we, I think we can train ourselves in that virtue. And it's a lot of it is this virtue of prudence of, you know, thinking before we act, self-reflection, trying to see things as they are, especially ourselves. But then what's interesting, too, is that um, that ability, that self-awareness, it makes it makes possible greater virtue, but it does also make possible greater vice because certainly the the self-awareness of Wickham makes his vices, his very intentional, deliberate vices that much more vicious because like he really does know exactly what he's doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At one point um, there was like a thread in a literary group and the question was who's worse, Wickham or Willoughby? And I was shocked how many people chose Willoughby because of the sake of the baby. But then you're thinking like, well, this is like a young man who does a thing that young men do, you know, without thinking, um, doesn't know there's a baby. This is from Sense and Sensibility. Doesn't know that there's a baby. And then when he finds out there's a baby, he panics, makes a rash life decision, but kind of ends up a sad sack. You know, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of malice. It's just a lot of imprudence and passion, which is the whole point of sense and sensibility, right? Like sense and sensibility, uh, passion and prudence. Um, But Wickham, even at the end, really like the last like icing on the cake is when we find out that he has run away with Lydia, Elizabeth's younger sister, after he's been welcomed into the bed at home doesn't pursue Elizabeth because and Elizabeth doesn't pursue him and they're kind of somewhat open about it because of lack of fortune. Okay, so he's getting ready to leave the regiment to run away because his debts are so high and he's like sucking as a soldier, you know, and so he's going to run away and stupid Lydia's like, I'm going to come with you. And he says, yes, he knows he's not going to marry her. He just wants a fling, even knowing, knowing this family and knowing that they have nothing but their charms to recommend them. They have no fortune, no hope to marrying well, except for someone falls in love with them. And he knows he's going to cause scandal to this entire family. He's a dastardly character. <laughs> Willoughby has nothing on him. You know? Yeah, he outrages such basic laws of hospitality, mm-hmm. um, you know, he flies in the face of justice, right? What he, what he owes to, to Lydia as a person, to her family for their hospitality. Um, yeah. Even if one could take advantage of Lydia, a, a stupid, you know, stupid Lydia who's, who is wanting to come with him, you know, to, to have known Elizabeth and known Elizabeth well, and to have been invited into their home to know their family's situation and still say, oh, going to ruin you. <laughs> For this woman, I'm not going to stay with, or I have no intention of staying with. You know, like, ooh. Yes. Well, Willoughby yeah. clearly lacks the imp- the prudence too, right? Because he's always gambling, living beyond beyond his means. You know, yeah. he makes all these these imprudent decisions. Um, while this man being very cunning and and slandering Darcy, um, so he's interesting that he shows the prudence Im- imprudence, but at the same time can clearly plan ahead. And mount a systematic attack to yeah, and 
together. And let's just mention for those people who have not read this, let's spoil this for them, that Wickham trying to get back at Mr. Darcy for whatever reason, (laughs) who knows what reason, vengeance, just pure vengeance in the heart, tries to secretly elope with his 16-year-old sister who has 30,000 pounds, like as an heiress, you know, who has lots and lots and lots of money, secretly elope with like, oh, this man is, this man bad. He's evil. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Um, So, but I I really want to hear Chesterton's. So Chesterton picks out Wickham as the perfect politician. Can you kind of set up this essay as to why he wrote it? This is an essay called On Jane Austen in the General Election. It was was an essay of his um, probably when he was yeah still writing journalistically. Um, but he writes, let's see, Mr. Wickham was or is exactly the sort of man who does make a success of political elections. Sometimes he is just a little too successful to succeed. Sometimes he is actually found out by some accident doing very dexterous things in the art of finance, and he disappears suddenly, but even then silently. But in the main, he is made for parliamentary, parliamentary life. And he owes his success to two qualities, both exhibited in the novel in which he figures. First, the talent for telling a lie by telling half of the truth. And second, the art of telling a lie, not loudly and offensively, but with an appearance of gentlemanly and graceful regret. Mm. (laughs) Mm. That's certainly, yeah, that's Wickham to a T. Yeah, he is like the whole of Hertfordshire believing that Darcy is like the worst man in the world. Just And gossip, like gossip plays a huge role in the novel Pride and Prejudice. And we had done an episode on gossip. Um, and at one point, well, anyway, so sorry. So they gossip and uh, the whole of Hertfordshire is voting Wickham, right? <laughs> and it's hard to undo that lie when they do indeed find out that he was the bad man, you know? Well, I get well, no, please go, Brittany. Okay. Well, it's an interesting question because they don't, Jane and Elizabeth try to decide, should we try to convince the whole neighborhood that Wickham is, is this horrible person or should we let him keep his reputation? Mm-hmm. And in the end, they determine that discretion would be you know the best path and they don't try to convince everyone. And they do the kind of the opposite of Wickham. You know, they, they decide let's not spread gossip. Let's not unnecessarily ruin anyone's good name, even if he's this horrible person. Yeah. You know, I never realized that until now, but this is a parallel conversation because it's the second conversation that they have about whether or not they're going to believe a rumor. The first Jane is trying to talk Lizzie. And I, I think I wrote it down. Jane is trying to talk Lizzie out of thinking ill of Mr. Darcy based on a rumor by Wickham and she's going through the thought process and this is so beautiful. Jane goes Jane is like the perfect sister. <laughs> right? The perfect prudent um in control of herself, you know, woman. She has all the goodness, the right? Pure heart. Yeah. The, yeah, pure heart. Um and she you know, she's trying to convince and and go through all the questions like well, can we really trust Wickham? We just met him. And it's he said all these things so quickly and so freely. And we don't know anything of Mr. Darcy's character. And we know that Mr. Bingley, his friend, is a very, very good man. You know, and so she goes through all the questioning and she says, 
Um, they have both been deceived, I dare say, in some way or another, of which we can form of which we can form no idea. Interested people perhaps have misrepresented each to the other. In short, it is impossible for us to conjure the causes or circumstances which may have alienated them without actual blame on either side. So Jane proceeds to think through the story, and then Lizzie says, or Jane says, one does not know what to think. And Lizzie says, I beg your pardon, one knows exactly what to think. And I didn't realize until now that that conversation is paralleled when they do find out the truth about Wickham and Mr. Darcy's innocence. Then they actually do the prudent thing, which is they decide whether or not to expose Wickham, you know? Yes. Right. And then I have the, I have the other parallel conversation where um, Jane says to have his errors made public might ruin him Wickham forever. He's now perhaps sorry for what he's done and anxious to reestablish a character. Like mm-hmm. she's so charitable and so willing to, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe he'll turn over a new leaf. Let's not do anything to put an obstacle in his path. Yeah. It's like she's reading directly from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. 20, 2477, respect yeah. for the reputation of persons forbids every attitude and word likely to cause them unjust in, injury. Um, a person becomes guilty of rash judgment who even tacitly assumes as true without sufficient foundation the moral of faults of a neighbor, of detraction who without objectively valid reason discloses another's faults and failings to the person who does not know them, and calumny who, by who by remarks contrary to the truth, so lies, harms the reputation of others and gives occasion for false judgments concerning them. Oh, Jane. oh jane is so catholic really she is yeah the ability again one thing it brings me back to that question that self-awareness that ability to see clearly that prudence um i think what sometimes happens you know even uh, amongst catholics in in the media as we're engaging in in discussions uh in the world is we we assume that there's sort of this distinction between our ability to think clearly and to to see clearly to to understand truth and then our character you know but as a wise man whose name i can't recall once said sin makes you stupid um and and you can't you can't engage in this um this calculus moral calculus this utilitarian calculus of saying well i i need to do this slightly slimy thing slander this person in order to ensure a good end because to step down that road means that you're not going to be able to see clearly. And you're also taking providence into your own hands. You have to trust that, no, if, if, if it is wrong to, to slander someone, if it is wrong to, to, um, to ruin someone's reputation, even if to some degree, in some sense, they deserve it, you can't, you can't expect good fruit to come from that. And so it, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that comes a lot in these books of this, this question of whether, whether or not to remain prudent even in those kinds of situations. Yeah, I, I, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, it's interesting how it plays out in Pride and Prejudice because there's a, you know, when Lydia elopes with Wickham, then Jane and Elizabeth are second guessing themselves. You know, did we do the right thing there? Was that the right decision? And Darcy says the same thing. Like, should I have disclosed his faults? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there was clearly an injustice done and it was, and I think Darcy felt it on himself and probably 
probably rightfully so, you know, because what happened with his sister was scandalous, even though it wasn't necessarily her fault, you know, little child, 16 year old. Um, but there could have been a course of action. It doesn't mean gossiping or spreading, you know, whatever, but I mean, he could have fought him or he could have, you know, taken him publicly and, you know, made this grievance. Um, not so he could just like slime away into the woodwork and, you know, feel kind of upset that, you know, and, and seek revenge on whomever he, he felt like seeking. So I think I, in the end, you know, Darcy, is the one who writes the whole situation, who kind of comes to Lydia's aid and makes Wickham marry her and pays his commission and stands as his best man, you know, um, so that the scandal that came to the Bennett family, um, that was that was probably what he saw his his making his inaction, you know, the the failing to do the right thing because of his pride, um, that kind of ruined this family, and you know, it's at the end of the novel. Both um, Elizabeth and Darcy, you know, um, recognize their faults. They recognize they were both hideously prideful people. And there's this point when Jane gets engaged to her love, Bingley, um, after a long drawn out thing that we probably won't even get into here. Um, You know, Jane's like, oh, Lizzie, Lizzie, I wish you could be so happy as me. And she says, until I have your goodness, I cannot have your happiness And then at the end, when she's, you know, going to her father saying that Mr. Darcy wants me to marry him. And um, Lizzie says, I am the happiest creature in the world. Perhaps other people have said it so before, but not with such justice. I am happier than even Jane. She only smiles. I laugh. And it took me a while to kind of understand that. But seen together, those two quotes seen together, you're kind of realizing that because she she fell so hard on her face and she was so wrong um, and was shown so much mercy that it's humiliating, you know, um, that she is able to have so much mercy and so much goodness in the resurrection of what she, of her great fault. You know, her sin was forgiven that it does bubble up when inside you when mercy is shown to you when you have been so bad and so wrong and things turn out right for you. The resurrection does happen. You know, um, Jane only smiles because Jane has always been good. Jane has always been good and she deserves good things and she gets good things. She's a good temperate person, but the sinner that falls harder, you know, like we, we, that, you know, the gospel tells us God is, is happier, <laughs> you know, like God is happy, you know, and we, some of that happiness, that laughter bubbles down into us too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a prodigal, prodigal son kind of story. Yeah. yeah in a way. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, who, so I want to ask this since we're kind of like at I don't know. We should wrap. We should wrap it up because I know we could talk about many other things. So, who's your favorite ridiculous character of all of her novels? Who's your favorite ridiculous one? Mm. Oh, well, I mean, I think Mr. Collins is pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. J- Mrs. Jenkins cracks me up in a sense and sensibility. Mm. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, she's, she's, she's so, so almost overdrawn. How terrible she is, but hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you know, Brittany. So in Pride and Prejudice, I mean, are there th- any themes that we haven't hit? Or are there any like real big takeaways for you that uh, that you want to touch on? 
I think the only one we haven't talked about that I want to talk about is justice, how it's such a novel about restoration of justice um, that Darcy in particular, I think, is like the highly just character in the book that rights all the wrongs and restores everything. He's kind of turns into the white knight figure in the end, mm -hmm. even though we don't see that coming in the beginning. Um, but that, yeah, justice is such a great theme in Jane Austen because... Yeah, in the end, each character gets their just desserts. Mm -hmm. um, what's their due in a very Christian sense of the word justice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, another interesting, so the, the interplay between between justice and then, you know, the, the virtues that are kind of downstream from it. Um, you know, again, in a character like Wickham or some of these very passionate, well, some of the other characters that are very, very passionate, very driven by their passions, um, we recognize that you know justice has to govern um, courage. Justice has to govern temperance. Uh, mm -hmm. When those virtues are orphaned, courage or or temperance or many of the other sub virtues therein, um, you can have a person that looks really great on the outside, but they're just following their passion. They're just following what's convenient. They're just following in the end what they want. But justice really is the the metric that that justice is very very objective. It, it really does look at what is truly the good, what is truly due to God and to my spouse or to my neighbor. Hmm. Um, and so again, somebody can look really good in the moment in their manners and their mores, or they may look really courageous or they may be very self-controlled, but whether or not those are subordinated and in service of justice is in the end, the key. And again, that gets borne out. One thing I do like about the novel, even though uh, Darcy is wrestling with a very deep seated, vice that we all deal with is pride. Um, we, we do see sometimes in certain characters on the surface, they can look more virtuous, but again, they're lacking the either they're lacking justice or perhaps it under the surface is a real malevolence in the case of Wickham where Darcy, he's got, he's got some hangups. He's got some, some pride, some prejudice to deal with, but he is a very just man. And in the end that, that uh, spills over into a, a melting of his pride and his prejudice. Uh, yeah, that's his saving grace of the the justice that he's, he has. Yeah, and I think that, so. Again, the classical this classical sort of a, a cascade of the virtues that prudence uh, is it comes first because whether or not a person really looks at reality, whether they have that self awareness uh, to to see themselves and to see the world as they are, that opens the the ability opens the avenue to really be a just person because unless you're a person who turns to reality you can't recognize the reality of justice now again in the case of wickham you have somebody who they recognize what justice is and they're not going to do it they're going to go the other direction but prudence is what opens the gate to the rest of the rest of virtue because it it looks to reality and asks what is true what is what it, who am i who is god who is my neighbor what are the real relationships and obligations and demands uh, amongst us and so, um, it, but then proceeding from there again with once you have a sense of justice, even though you're imperfect, even though you lack courage in certain areas, even though you lack temperance, the point is that justice can can keep you returning to try again and to seeking mercy when you've messed up. You know. Yeah. So what is it that because Mr. Darcy is a just man all the way through, even in his proposal to Lizzie when she turns him down, he says things that are very just that your family is beneath me, that it's a degradation, <laughs> that I'm like going to marry you, but please marry me anyway. You know, he speaks about his character. He speaks about 
all the reasons why he shouldn't marry her. And they are just. Or at least I mean, they're true, at least we might say. So you know? at what point is it? Is it just because she flat out refuses him? Like at what point does his heart, does that heart change? Hmm. Because he goes home and he writes that letter. Is it that? Is that the? Is that the thing that he doesn't do? Like that's what he didn't do when his sister, you know, he didn't expose any of himself because it was it was beneath him. And so maybe perhaps like the first time he's actually exposing anything, you know, beyond Colonel Fitzwilliam, his family member who knows it because they were the same guardian of the same sister, but like nobody else knows it, you know. And so maybe it's the first time of him like so. What is that like? If he's spilling his heart and this is the moment when he changes because he is actually saying things that should have been should have been said, what is that that changes him? Because the next time he sees Elizabeth, he's soft and caring and not prideful towards his relations that he had called a degradation before. You know, so it's clearly in the letter, in her refusal and in the letter. So what is it? I don't have an answer. And I might be wrong. But... <laughs> That's for, where the- for some people is is writing like a form of self reflection. It's almost like his version of an examine or something. Yeah, maybe had to think through the whole like why didn't I like her and why didn't I like her relations? Like really think about it, mm-hmm. and that kind of brought a certain self awareness. Huh. I think so. I mean, again, we, there's some there's so many interesting contrasts in the book. We have these silly characters like Mrs. Bennett. Um, who again? They're lacking prudence, but they they do out of their temperament, just out of passion. They just like you know exa- everything they think and they feel. Um, um, it just it just comes out whether or not it should. We have other characters who are very self aware, and I think I think pride is a greater danger for someone who is self aware, someone who has the capacity to be prudent. Uh, now, prudence is necessary to grow further, but it does open you up to then. Um, making more willful choices about whether or not to open yourself up. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're open to greater humility, but you're also open to greater pride. And so again, with, with Darcy, there is this, um, I, there's a, there's a moment in there where the, uh, the coming out outside of himself, even to share his feelings, that's this real kind of breakdown of, of pride, even, even to say them to himself to some degree mm-hmm. in that letter, in the, as you said, in that self-reflection of, of putting it down in words, how he feel that that's a big sort of, um, well, it's, it's a, it's a prudence and humility because it's turning to reality. You know, it's also the opposite of gossip. What he does revealing that to the woman he loves and someone who has laid a just claim against him, you know, like, I dislike you because you destroyed my sister's happiness and you destroyed Wickham's happiness. Okay. So we've seen up to this point in this novel that people gossip, 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 gossip. And these, you know, like uh, Mrs. Bennett is a gossip. She's a gossip, you know. And then this is an occasion where something does have to come to light and it's done in a prudential manner, you know, in a private letter. And he's doing it to a person he believes he can trust. I mean, we we did an episode on, on gossip and we're saying, like, at what point, like, we don't just all keep things to ourselves all the time. So at what point does it stop being gossip and it starts being a prudential conversation? And that is the key. I mean, that's the difference between between gossip and and conversations that ought to be had. I mean, prudence says this is the right time and the right way and the appropriate person to share this with. 
mm-hmm. versus gossip, where it's, no, this is not their business or nor my business, and this is going to hurt somebody's reputation. Prudence recognizes, no, in this in this moment, sharing this with this person, this is the right thing to do. This is prudent. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's an act of virtue, an act of courage to share my heart with this person in this context. That's so interesting because the whole rest of the novel is like anti-gossip. Because then Lizzie shares her heart when she finds out that her sister Lydia has run away with Wickham and she shares it with the right person. You know, the person who came upon her, the person she feels that she can trust. I haven't thought this through, so I'm not going to let stuff fly out of my brain. But now I'm like, well, I need to read it for the 11th time. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, so going places I didn't know I was going to go. So. So justice. Yeah. It's all, yeah, it's all fascinating that the way the prudence of which conversations to have, which people, which times. Yeah, it's all prudence. You know, Mr. Another, it just, I'm, Mr. Bennett is fascinating to me too. Because again, as another one of the characters in the story who's has the capacity for self-awareness, you know, like, like Wickham, like Lizzie, like Darcy. I mean, he, 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 he he's aware of himself and other people, and that's why he loves to tease Mrs. Bennett because she 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 can't see herself in the same way that he can see himself and see her. But again, he what's what's his deal? I almost want to say that he's a perhaps a slothful person in the sense that he he is he's not really striving to be who he could be in that relate in his various relationships. Yeah, he's kind of given up on his marriage. You know, kind of just given up on the fact that like I'm going to have anything to. Yeah, he is slothful. Like, yeah. I'm not going to check Lydia. It'll just figure it out on its own. <laughs> has, like, as Aristotle would say, he actually has great ability. You know, he has a good mind. He has a yeah. studious bent. He has a good sense of humor, a good self-awareness. He could actually have done a lot. But instead, he's sitting there in the country, like, buried in his library, ignoring his daughters, you know, poking fun at his wife, just yeah. living the laugh at his neighbors, basically. Yeah. yeah. I also know something, something interesting. Um so in the book at one point, you know, he he remarks to Mrs. Bennett that he has a bunch of silly daughters, with the possible exception of Lizzie. And we were watching the BBC adaptation the other day. And I noticed that in that adaptation, he says that very forthrightly um, with uh, both Lizzie and Jane in the room. In other words, he calls Jane one of the silly daughters uh, with her there. And I don't know, I, I can't remember if that was what happened in the book, but I'm like thinking... What I guess, let me get your opinion on this. It seems to me that he likes Lizzie because almost because of her vices rather than because of her virtues, because she shares some of the same vices with him. Would you say that that's maybe the case? I totally agree. Yes, that's definitely their bond. That they have that they like to poke fun at others. They like to enjoy. You know, because when he, they meet Mr. Collins, right, yeah. he's like looking at Lizzie to see her laughing as like to complete his own enjoyment. So right. that's totally all he likes about her is her ability to. Yeah. And, you, and hopefully like you get from it that like your marital relationship, even if it's imperfect, it can't grow <laughs> if you are. You know, your your real relationship with your daughters, especially your younger daughters, like it can't grow if you're always poking fun <laughs> at them, like there's, if they're always the butt of the joke, you know, you are going to have silly daughters and a silly wife who pursues her own interests because there's just no effort there. You know, there's this, there's an effort with Lizzie, mm-hmm. you know, Jane is effortless, 
she's yeah. just pleasing. But there's an effort with Lizzie because of yeah. her vices. But she, but she's able to recognize in Jane that that Jane does have something in her in her pure heart and her ability to to see the good in everyone. That there is something very beautiful there. And Jane or uh, Lizzie is able to pursue that, even though it doesn't come to her as quite as naturally. But you know, she she is the character who could go a variety of different directions. You know, she could end up more like her dad or she could, you know, keep trying to emulate the the virtue that her sister, her elder sister exemplifies so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Mr. Bennett's very proud. You know, what we're saying is, is that he's putting himself above everyone else and yeah. saying, you know, I am so much smarter than all of you silly women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you mentioned earlier or, or somehow it mentioned the conversation to the Oh, yeah, the opposition of pride to both humility as well as magnanimity. I think that's mm-hmm. a key here as well, that um, pride and sloth, sloth being – pride being this inordinate self-love, but sloth being this this unwillingness to to um, rise to the, the ability that God's given you, to rise to the greatness to which he's called you, that, again, humility and magnanimity are opposed to both of those. You know, humility being this true evaluation of yourself, but – Magnanimity. Can you talk more about magnanimity as as a virtue? Because that's I don't think feel like too many people know what that means. So it would be uh, I don't have a definition written down, but you know, having kind of uh, getting getting to your full potential. Like man, man, magnus is great in Latin, right. so magnanimity comes from the Latin word great. So it's yeah. like kind of actualizing the greatness. Would that yeah. be a good way? For- or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I heard somebody say like great heartedness in the sense of yeah. you. I mean, I think in you, I have a quote here from, from Peter Kreeft. I think that's Bingley. I think that that's Charles Bingley. Yeah. Right. Like if we're trying to think of someone who, well, it's all, it's Mr. Knightley, but that's a different novel. Um, but if you're, if you're thinking of someone in Pride and Prejudice who is wealthy, who shows the right virtue of wealth, you know, the right virtue of their greatness, the right virtue of what they have been called to based on what they've inherited or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think Bing, uh, Bingley, he's he's full of liberality. You know, he's full of generosity. Um, and he, he is around silly people and tries to in, invite them in the conversation and give them the dignity that they're due. Yeah, I think bo- that both that's Bing, where we were going. But. Bingley and Darcy both, I think, exemplify this um, in the sense of the, this recognition that they... You, you ought to do something great with your life. I mean, that's maybe one sense of magnanimity. This is a quote from Prayer for Beginners by Peter Kreeft. He writes, High and holy ambition to be a saint is not opposed to holy humility, total reliance on God's grace. Exactly the opposite. Ambition without humility is ambition that fails. It is pride, which goes before a fall. But humility without ambition is false humility. In fact, it too is pride. For it rebels against God's command to strive for the upward call of God. So again, I love that contrast, right? Because you can have, certainly you can have um, uh, pride, but you can also have a prideful false humility. And maybe this is what uh, Mr. Bennett has a little bit. uh, A false humility that resists the upward call to do something great with your life. Yes, definitely. Guys, we could talk forever on Jane Austen, uh, on Pride and Prejudice alone, um, but I think we have to wrap it up to respect your time. Um, I am so grateful to have had this conversation, and I really, really hope to inspire people to read Jane Austen. If you can't get into it, watch the movie first. <laughs> the BBC six-part 
version. It's on Amazon yes. Prime. You can find it. Um, it's amazing. You can find the books in your library. And again, true to the 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 title of the book, you know, don't be prejudiced. Don't judge a book maybe by its cover because for some reason the uh, Jane Austen books often look like steamy romance novels, but they are are so much more. You know? <laughs> Well, again, uh, Brittany, tell uh, people where they can find you. You can find me at goodbooksforcatholickids.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Going to lead us yeah, out sure. And, and thank you, Brittany. And thank you for uh, joining us uh, uh, and listening or watching, however you're, you're hearing us. Um, once again, as I said at the beginning, uh, please go to awakencatholic.org and join us in this mission. Uh, download the app at theawakenapp.io and download the Hallow app at hallow.app slash awaken. Hey, we appreciate you listening, you watching. Make sure you like and subscribe, all those good internet things. Hey, we'll talk to you again next time. God bless. This show and all media on Awaken Catholic is made possible by the Awaken Nation and the Hallow app. The Awaken Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org slash donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hallow.app slash awaken.